um, we just decided to do that like uh, yesterday. We just thought, you know, we did a Mother's Day video for moms because moms are awesome. We want to honor moms and love moms. And we kind of didn't really do anything for dads or didn't plan anything for dads. So you get the last minute breakfast sandwiches, but those are good, right? I'm not, I'm not complaining about those. So uh, thank you, uh, gals, for putting that together. Um, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, that's where we're going to be camping out today as we continue our series in 1 Peter. Um, our first Peter series was uh, born during quarantine. We, the first week of our quarantine was the first week we were in 1 Peter. And so this whole series basically has been in the midst of a quarantine. And, you know, that was really providential um, from God, and we're really thankful for that. And Peter has addressed in this timeless book, in his timeless epistle, he's addressed a lot of things that are super pertinent to where we're at in this season, down to really specific things like submission to government authority in a time where we're like, do we submit to the government? And Peter deals with that. Um, he, he's dealt with marriage, which is always pertinent for those of us who are married. Um, he's dealt with uh, submitting to authority in the workplace um, and, uh, and all kinds of other things. But, but the main idea in 1 Peter um, in terms of the totality of the book, at least one of the driving ideas is Peter's really trying to help the people that he's writing to, the churches he's writing to, and therefore us today by extension, he's trying to help us understand our identity in Jesus, who we are in Christ. And as Christians, we've been bought by Jesus. We've been rescued by him. We've been redeemed by him. We've been made new. And so Peter wants to really help us understand what all of that means. Here's who you are in Jesus. And then as a result, here's what it looks like to live as a Christian, to live out of our identity, and in particular, how to live out of our identity in a fallen world where there's lots of sin and even suffering in our lives. What does it look like for Christians to suffer well in a fallen and sinful world? We've been made new by the blood of Jesus, but we still have sin in our flesh. There's still sin in the world. The world has not been fully renewed yet. That will happen one day, but right now the world is still fallen. I mean, it doesn't take much for us to understand that. Even non-Christians, those who don't believe in Jesus at all, would look at the world and say, it's not as it ought to be. I mean, it's broken. People kill each other. People hate each other. People speak ill of each other. There's wars. There's orphans. There's hunger. There's starvation. There's all kinds of issues that while we look at our world, we see it's beautiful, made by God, but at the same time, we see that it's broken. And, and for Christians in the world, we will suffer. And particularly, we will suffer to varying degrees as Christians. And that's really one of the main things that Peter is trying to prepare his people for and that God's trying to build and grow us in. And when we think suffering, don't think physical torture and arrest. Certainly that is the case for some people in the world. That has been the case throughout the centuries. Um, in Peter's day, Christians were being persecuted and suffering a bit like we do today here in America, a little bit different, but the persecution hadn't yet, had not yet gotten to the physical point. It was still verbal and social. People were being kind of isolated from the popular groups, that sort of thing. People were being cut out of business deals. People were not being treated well. People were being slandered. Christians were being slandered for being Christians, looked down upon, kicked out, shut down, that sort of thing. And that, that, that's what's going on in Peter's day to the Christians there, a bit like is happening in our day. So Peter's, one of his main goals is to help us understand, here's who you are in Jesus, and here's what it looks like to work out of your identity in life, particularly in suffering. You'll recall last week, we covered a, uh, 
interesting text and uh, a lot of studying that you can go back and do on that. You can go listen to the sermon. You can pick up some books on that. We can chat about it if you have questions. I know we had some sound issues as well. And I just want to thank the sound guys as well, Drew and Dana and James. They just do such a good job. You know, when you meet outside, it's really hard to get all that stuff nailed down properly. But if it happens this week, at least you'll, you know, it won't be a surprise to you. So, <laughs> um, but uh, we kind of experienced that in the middle of this, this interesting and difficult text. Um, but, but, but with all the details in the text we covered last week, I just want to remind you of kind of the main point of the text. And the main point was this, it's bookended by verses 18 and 22 that kind of gives us Peter's main point is that Jesus has had victory over death. Jesus has had victory over death. Look back with me again at 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus actually suffered. He actually lived. He suffered. He died. And in doing so, he being perfectly righteous, exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. So he takes on himself all of our sin and he gives us in exchange his own righteousness. Verse 22 then of 1 Peter 3, he said this, Jesus has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So Jesus defeated sin and defeated the curse and defeated death and defeated God's wrath or satisfied God's wrath, the consequence for our sin. And as a result, he then ascended to heaven to reign and rule with God in power and authority. Jesus has had victory over death. That was the main point last week. And now coming straight contextually, coming straight from that passage, Peter then gets into chapter four. And here's what he begins to say in chapter four, as a result of what Jesus has done, as a result of the victory that Jesus has had over death, here's then Christians, how you should live in light of that. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Uh, the title of today's sermon is Living Your Faith in an Unbelieving World. It's not a new title for you. We, we've, we've looked at this theme a lot through First Peter. Again, it's kind of the main theme in First Peter, living our faith, living out of our identity in Jesus in an unbelieving, sinful, fallen world where we will suffer. In light of Jesus's victory over death though, what does it look like for Christians to live in an unbelieving world? And the first point for us to consider is this, arm yourselves to fight sin. There's really two main points in this passage, in this passage uh, verses one through 11 of chapter four. Very simple, arm yourselves to fight sin or fight sin and obey God. Those are the two main ideas two main points for us today. Fight sin and obey God. Arm yourselves to fight sin and arm yourselves to obey God. We get that language from verse one of chapter four. Peter says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same mindset that Jesus had as he suffered in his flesh. One of the primary aspects of arming ourselves to fight sin in a fallen world is being prepared for suffering. Main point, arm yourselves for fighting sin. What does that look like? Well, one of the things it looks like is preparing for suffering. We need to understand as Christians in a fallen world, we will suffer for being Christians. One of the primary indicators that we have been broken from the world and united to Jesus is not only that we will suffer, but that we are willing to suffer. 
This is what Peter means when he says, whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. He's not saying that if you suffer, you, you at some point will become sinless. That if you suffer in the flesh, you no longer will be plagued by sin. You'll actually become perfect. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that our willingness to suffer for our faith, like Jesus suffered in obedience to the Father, that our willingness to suffer for our faith is a clear pointer to the fact that we are in Jesus and that we have overcome. In Jesus, we have overcome sin. We have triumphed over sin. Here's what it indicates, that we love Jesus more than we love the world, that we love Jesus more than we love ourselves, that we love Jesus more than we love comfort. And as a result, as Christians, if we're willing to suffer, we've conquered sin in Christ. We've put an end to sin. It doesn't mean every single sin uh, has been completely eradicated. It doesn't mean we're sinless, but it means categorically, like we've stepped over. We're, we're now new. We're, in, we're, we're under a new master. We're no longer under the master of sin, but under the master Jesus. And that's indicated by us being willing to suffer in our allegiance to and following Jesus that we'll do whatever it takes to follow Jesus faithfully. And to help us understand this, he points back to Jesus. Christ suffered in the flesh. See, for Christians, there's never, there's never any commands that the New Testament gives us or directives that the New Testament requires of us that are disconnected from the person of Jesus. See, Jesus actually, he actually died for sin and he actually rose for life, but he also is our example. And so Peter here doesn't just say, hey, be really good and kind of figure out what that means on your own. He says, here's what it looks like to live faithfully. Look to Jesus. And here's what he says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, did Jesus suffer in the flesh? He did. And the first thing that we think of instantly is the cross. We think of the cross, we think of the path to the cross, the events leading up to the cross, his torture, uh, his false trials, his scourging, and the actual cross. We think of that and we should, but pan the camera out a bit. Jesus didn't just suffer at the cross. He suffered his whole life. He suffered in different ways throughout the entirety of his life. He was subject to reviling and to slander and to gossip. One example for you, Luke 7, 33 through 34, Jesus says this as he's kind of sighing over all the slander that's being said about him. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating, uh, no bread and drinking no wine. He was a simple guy. He ate bugs and honey and he didn't drink any wine. And you look at John, Jesus says to his critics, you look at John and say, he has a demon. And then I, the son of man, have come eating and drinking. Jesus ate good food. He drank wine. He he partied in a sanctified way. He hung out with all kinds of seedy people. He, he, He just had a good time. He laughed. He had fun. He enjoyed God's creation. And you look at him and say, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he's saying, you're never happy. No matter what, you're just going to slander. No matter what, you're just going to gossip. No matter what, you're just going to revile. Jesus suffered like that his entire life. Jesus's opponents attributed his works that were God's works to the works of Satan. Luke chapter seven, or 11 rather, Luke records this, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
But it's like, who's against casting demons out? Jesus comes and casts a demon out thinking, well, even, even someone who doesn't believe in demons will think it's good that this guy's not mute anymore and tortured and tormented. But even when he casts a demon out, he's ridiculed. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. John chapter six, at the end of that long chapter, Jesus gives them some hard teachings about what it looks like to actually be a disciple and follow him. And John records this, after this, after that teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Even Jesus' family thought he was off the rails. Mark 3.21, when his family heard it, some miracle he did or something he said, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. See, we worship a Lord who suffered at the cross, but also who suffered his whole entire life in different ways. And, and we're promised in scripture as we read our Bibles, what we realize is Jesus suffered and we will suffer like him. We won't die for anybody's sin. We're not capable of that. But like Jesus suffered, we will also suffer. Lots of verses I could read on this. I'm gonna give you one super clear one. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, period. This is a fact of our faith. Today in America, we are blessed to have some respite from some of the grosser forms of persecution, but we still will suffer. Look at me at verse four of 1 Peter 4. With respect to this, Peter says, when we don't partake, participate in the same things that the Gentiles do, the same things that we used to do before we were Christians, Peter says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they ridicule you, they make fun of you, they slander you. We still will suffer. Uh, I was talking to a guy this week and he, and he told me a story about a guy he knows, a friend of mine got together with a guy he knows. This guy said, hey, I wanna, I wanna get lunch. Let's get some lunch. And he, my friend said, okay, cool. I haven't seen this guy in a long time. He sat down with him and this guy said, hey, I just wanna confess and apologize. I've like totally hated you for the last like 12 years. And um, he said, oh gosh, why? And my, my friend was a, is a Christian and he said, gosh, why? I'm, I, that's kind of news to me. And he said, yeah, but I want to apologize to you because I hated you. I slandered you. I made fun of you. I ridiculed you. I talked ill of you behind your back. I just thought ill of you. I, I just didn't like you. And what I realized was when you became a Christian and you kind of pulled away from me a little bit, I thought you were just being judgmental. I thought you were being a jerk and I didn't like it. I was a little convicted. And so I just started hating you. I became bitter towards you. And I really need to apologize for that. I've become a Christian recently. And I'm sorry for my hatred towards you. And I thought, man, that's a really, that was a really honest confession from a former non-Christian saying, I just hated you because you were a Christian. That's basically what he was saying. And he was apologizing for that. I'll tell you another story. I can tell you lots of stories like that. I can tell you another story. I talked to a guy recently. He's dating a gal and uh, they're looking forward to marriage and that's what they're planning on. And they were with some friends recently and the friend said, so are you guys planning on getting married or something? And they said, well, yeah, you know, we're not just dating just to, just to mess around. I mean, we're Christians. We love Jesus. We're looking forward to marriage. And they said, you guys are freaks. You guys are weird. Why would you want to do that? You're in college. Why are you even thinking about marriage? Why not just date around? Why not just sleep with as many people as you can? Why not just have fun? You're weird. I mean, to hear that sort of language from good friends can be painful, can't it? 
I could tell you another story about someone at work who began sharing the gospel over the course of a few weeks with two of their coworkers and a good conversations were happening, but another coworker wasn't so hot on this and called HR and made a big fuss about it and kind of viewed it as religious discrimination, which it wasn't. And uh, person I know kind of faced some professional consequences as a result. I did college ministry, young adult ministry for a long time. I love young men and women who are just trying to figure life out and trying to follow Jesus or aren't following Jesus and need to repent of sin and follow Jesus. And I can't tell you how many 20 something year olds I've talked to who become Christians, genuinely get converted, they get born again, they begin to love Jesus and they're excited and they go home and their parents who have been kind of moral and maybe identify with Christ in some way, but they kind of see their kids and they're like, oh, cool, you became a Christian, that's great. And they think it's their brand of Christianity. And really it's, it's actual regeneration, it's actual salvation. And the parents after a while go, you're kind of extreme. You're kind of a freak. You're kind of making me and mom uncomfortable. You're kind of being weird. You need to just chill out. Don't, you know, everything in moderation. So just relax a little bit. Maybe you shouldn't go to church. Maybe you should just pull back a little bit. Maybe you need to calm down. From your parents who say they're Christians? I mean, give me a break. That's rough. I could tell you a story about a girl, a gal I talked to recently who went out with some coworkers recently after work and they were talking about some stuff that's happened in the culture or whatever. And she was saying, you know, I'm kind of, I view that a little bit differently than you do maybe, but I'm happy to talk about it. And they just jumped on her, said, well, it's because you're a Christian. You're not loving, you're not compassionate. You don't understand, you don't really care. Okay, Christians will suffer and don't minimize like verbal abuse and verbal assault and slander. I mean, that can be super painful, super painful. Jesus experienced that. You and I will experience suffering and it may get worse at some point, but to whatever degree the suffering is, the fact is we will experience it. And to walk faithfully with Jesus, we must be prepared to suffer well. That's suffering from without. That's rather fighting sin from without. The, the second part of this, arming ourselves to fight sin is fighting it from within. We must be prepared to fight to, for, for suffering. We must be prepared for suffering. We also must be prepared to battle our flesh. Both of those are under the point being prepared to fight sin. Part of the sin is in our flesh. Verses two and three of 1 Peter 4. Look there is with me in your Bible. Peter says this, so to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for the passions of the flesh, for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time for that is past, Peter says. Enough is enough. You, you're, he's talking to Christians here, and basically here's what he says. You're done with that. You're done with it. And even furthermore, you're dead to it. Not only are you done with that way of living, but you're dead to that way of living. Right? We're not sinless, but we are made new. It means we have a new heart, new desires, 
new loves a new Lord and our desires and direction has completely changed. When we were in the world and in the flesh, our desires and our direction was going one way. When we became a Christian, we're going the opposite way. Peter says, you're done, you're done with that. The time for that is over. Man, if you're trying to live in both worlds, you just need to understand the Bible has no category for that. The Bible has no category for that. That does not mean that we won't struggle with sin. We will struggle with sin, but sometimes I'm afraid what, 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 I, what we do oftentimes is we kind of just sin, not struggle, just straight up sin. We live in a way that invites sin. We live in a way that, that invites the work of the flesh. We just sin and sin and sin. And then we call that struggle. And it's like, no, 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 that's just sinning. Struggling is like win, lose, win, lose, lose, win, win, lose, lose, lose. Man, that was a bad streak. But, I, but man, by God's grace, I'm gonna have victory over this because I'm empowered by the spirit. That's struggling. Okay, that's a normal Christian thing. But just sinning is not. There is no category for living in the world and in Christ. Peter says, you're, you're done with that. You're done with that. Our desires and our direction have completely changed. We understand that. We understand we're made new. And yet we do understand that we still have some leftover sin. We have a remnant of sin still in us. That's in our flesh. Peter again, verse one. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same thinking as Christ. So as, verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. So we must prepare to battle flesh. We must arm ourselves with Christ's mind in order to battle flesh. The lingering temptations, the lingering sin, the lingering passions or cravings that seek to drive us away from Jesus. We need to be prepared to fight those. Okay, so let's just get real practical on this for a minute. What are some areas or categories in life that we may be susceptible for sin getting its hooks in us? We need to identify those if we're to be able to fight them well. Again, we've, I've used this analogy before, but if, if, if you're in combat overseas, we need to, you need to know who your enemy is in order to fight them effectively. You need to know what kind of weapons they're going to use to the best of your ability. You need to know what their tactics are, what their game plan is, what their strategy is. It's the same thing with Satan and sin. We need to understand what areas of our life, what areas of my life do I need to close the doors, close the windows to prevent the wrong things from coming in that will influence me towards sin and away from Jesus. Okay, how about who you spend your time with? How about who you spend your time with? Uh, there are some people you should not spend time with, particularly if you're a new Christian. Particu not, not only, but particularly if you're a new Christian or if you're immature, if you're just trying to figure things out. One of the things I love about new Christians is that they have this real zeal and desire to go back to their friends who are not Christians and to share the gospel with them. And let me just say, we actually need that. We need older Christians, not just to hang out with each other, but we need older Christians to take young Christians under their wing and to show them what 1 Peter 3.15 is like, how to answer people gently and in humility, but with speech seasoned with salt, how to give an answer for the hope that's in us. We need older Christians to teach that to younger Christians. We need that because we need those younger Christians to go back to their friends. They're connected to so many more non-Christians than you and I are if we've been Christians for 10 or 20 or longer years. So we need that, but there are times 
for new Christians when there needs to be some sort of break to allow maturity and growth before we dive back into our old friend groups, even with good intentions of evangelism. Because you know what? There are some sins that are pervasive. There are some sins that are so tempting. There are some lifestyles that just suck you back in. And sometimes we need a break from those. We need a break from those. How about for those of you who are single or dating, what about your dating relationship or, or those who you would look to date or how you view your dating relationship, relationship? It's so strange to me that Christians think that casual dating different guy or different gal every week is like acceptable. I mean, it's a strange, it's strange to me that, that, that people can view that and say, oh, that's totally, totally fine. No problem with that. No danger there. What's even stranger is that some Christians date people who they should not be dating and think to themselves, this is going to be good for them. You know, they're going to change. They're going to change. They're going to clean their act up. They're going to be, you know, I just pray someone in the church would just invest in them so that they can grow. Sometimes we just date people we just flat out shouldn't because we like them. And we think to ourselves, they're going to do better and they're going to change. And then when they exhibit one moment of evidence of Christ likeness, we just cling to that. We just cling on to that. Man, they did something Christ like there. I'm never going to forget that. I'm never going to forget it. I'm just going to remind every time they do a million ungodly things, I'm just going to remind myself they did something Christ like one time a couple months ago. And that's progress. I would just say this, if you, if, if, for, for who you're spending time with, man, that's such an easy way to let sin sink its hooks in you. At least it can be. If you're single or if you are dating or if you're looking to date, man, do you have the proper standards? Do you have the proper biblical convictions to conduct yourself in a healthy God-honoring relationship? Or do you just go to the lowest possible bar? Like, hey, they've confessed Christ. Good enough for me. Good enough for me. Wherever they go to church, doesn't matter. Their Christian community, doesn't matter. How they live, doesn't matter. That can all change. As long as they've confessed Christ, man, that's way too low of a standard. Do you have the proper standards and convictions? Are you in accountability and under authority? You should not be dating if you are not willing to be under authority. You should not be dating if you are not dating in community. You shouldn't be. If you have friends, you say, man, I'm married or whatever, so I'm not looking to date, but I know somebody who is. This is one of those good times where most times when you hear sermons, you shouldn't just think about other people, you know, like, oh yeah, they suck at this and, you know, they got to get better at this, but, but I'm good. We should apply it first to ourselves, but this is one of those cases. If you are married and you're not dating, but you know somebody who is, and that's kind of how they think, then yeah, you should go to them and you should say, hey, I got I got I got, we got to talk about this. I remember I talked to someone recently who was saying, you know, this, this person uh, I knew super, super well. They're one of my best friends. They were dating someone they just really shouldn't have. And I didn't say anything. And then they broke up and I went up to them and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you broke up. He was awful for you. And she's like, why didn't you ever say anything? It's like, oh, because I was a coward. You know, I was a coward. I'd rather be liked by you than actually seek your good. Do your relationship in the light. Um, how about attitude and language? Are you critical 
uncharitable, judgmental? Do you speak ill of others or have a tendency to? Do you speak ill to others? Maybe you're not passive aggressive. You're just aggressive, just aggressive. <laughs> what, about, what about that? What about your attitude and your language? Because I'll tell you this, and I'm not saying let's point out all the sins in our life. What I am saying is we have to identify categories and inclinations and proclivities because sin snowballs. And if we don't stop and say, I need to fight that, I need to, I need to actually fight my, my earthly and fleshly passions on that, it's just gonna keep growing and growing and growing. To arm ourselves to fight sin, we need to identify it and then make a concerted effort by God's grace to actually fight it. How about selfishness? You know, we're all born selfish. I have three kids. They, they all are concerned about their own needs. I know lots of single people you know what, if you're single, this is not an insult, it's just a fact. If you are single, you live an intrinsically selfish lifestyle. And I'm not saying that in a moral way, I'm just saying you don't, have any, you don't have anyone else to worry about. I mean, you don't have a spouse to worry about, you don't have kids to take care of. You go home, you kind of do what you want, that's it. If you wanna get a new job, you get a new job. If you wanna go travel, you go travel. You, can just, you, you just pick up and go. You don't have to worry about the other connections, just how it is when you're single. Okay, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm just saying it, 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 it doesn't, it, it feeds into our sinful selfishness. You just have to watch out for it. You have to fight the tendency and the urge and the human passion to be selfish and seek to serve and love others. Put others first and not your, sometimes when you're married, even, even then, selfishness kind of reigns sometimes, right? But at least when you're married, you have kids, you, you have kind of a built-in, you're forced to think about somebody else in some way. But when you're single, man, you really, gotta, you really gotta go against the grain. How about what you fill your mind with? There's a lot of these categories we could cover. One more, how about, how about what you fill your mind with? There's a lot of garbage out there in the world that we can pump in our brains, and I'm not one of the, I'm not saying Christians can't enjoy TV and shows and movies. I'm not one of those people, okay? Enjoy entertainment. But there is a lot of stuff. Some is just a waste of time and useless and unhelpful. And sometimes it's just volume, okay? Watching six or eight hours of Netflix is not helpful. It's just not. Playing video games for eight hours on the weekends is not useful. Surfing your phone on social media 17 hours a day is not useful. It's just not useful. There's some things that are not useful. There's some things that are flat out destructive. There's some things that we can pump in our minds that are simply destructive, not least of which is the pornography, I wanna say epidemic, but pandemic, pun intended. That's, the real, that's a real pandemic, pandemic that we are facing in the world. And there's a lot we could say on that. Um, Ma'am, some sin gets its hooks in us deep in sexual immorality. At least it can. We need each other to fight through that. But I just want to say this to you parents of young kids, to you parents. I was reading this week and I had read this before, but it was a really good reminder for me as a parent, as a dad of three young kids. Boys, 
young boys are exposed to pornography. Nine out of 10 boys are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. And many of those are before the age of 12 or 13. Six out of 10 girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. You might say, I don't want to hear my pastor say pornography. I don't want to talk. Well, you know what? It's super important. It's really pastoral. It's a huge issue in our world. And parents, I just want to ask you, how are you guarding or arming your home to fight sin? Something to consider and to revisit and to talk about with your spouse and to figure out because you know what? This is a big issue and it's not going away. We have to pray for it to go away, but it's not going away. We have to arm ourselves to fight it. Okay, so arm yourself to fight sin from without, preparing for suffering from within, preparing to battle our flesh. Okay, you might say, okay, those are some good categories. How How do I do this? How do I actually walk in these things? That's gonna be the second part here, briefly. Arm yourselves to obey God. Arm yourselves to obey God. Arm ourselves to fight sin, but also we need to arm ourselves to obey God. 1 Peter 4, 7. We'll come back and look at a few more details in the first chunk, but I'm gonna read 7 through 11 for you. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as to one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as serving by the strength that God supplies. Listen, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. Arm yourselves to obey God. I want to say this on on passages like this. Sometimes we read passages like that in the Bible where where scripture tells us to do a number of things. Sometimes we hear sermons like this where, where, where we hear a number of things that we need to do. And there's a couple mistakes that we can make sometimes in our way of, in our interpretation of these passages or these sermons. Let me give you two mistakes in an effort to kind of curtail us making these mistakes. Mistake number one is this. We hear this list of things, love one another, practice hospitality, um, you know, use your gifts to build the body and to glorify God. We hear that, and these are, these are, these are imperatives, do these things. And sometimes we hear that and we think, okay, I need to do these things so that God will accept me. I need to do these things so that God will be happy. Maybe we don't think that in a constructed sentence, but maybe that's just kind of our like way of interpreting it. That's our impulse. I need to do X, Y, and Z so that God will be happy with me. And I just want to put the brakes on if that's kind of where you go when you hear passages like this, because that is not, what scripture teaches? In fact, it's the exact opposite. In Jesus Christ, listen, in Christ, by looking to Jesus, repenting of our sin, saying, I trust you, Jesus. You, you died for my sin. You rose for my life. My life is in you and I've received your righteousness. That is how I'm made right with God. Not by my works, but by Jesus's works. We are made right by, by works, just not our own, but Jesus's. Okay, when we understand that, We realize then that God cannot love you. God cannot love you, Christian, any more than he does. And God will not love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's no good things you can do, moral things you can do to make God's love for you increase. 
because his love for you is in Christ who never changes. And there's no, no, no wrong things that you can do to make God love you less because his love for you is based in Christ who never changes. Okay, that's the gospel. We are fully accepted through Christ by God the Father. We are now his children. So when the Bible tells us to obey God or to listen to God or to what we're saying, arm ourselves for obedience to God, the obedience is not to a cruel taskmaster, but to a good father, okay? Huge, wildly different outcomes. If we think we're obeying a taskmaster, that's gonna be, we're gonna live one way. If we understand we're obeying a good father, we're gonna live a completely different way. Okay, second mistake, and it's more subtle. We realize, okay, I'm in Jesus. I've been made new by grace and I still have some sin to fight. And here's the mistake. We realize that, but then we think to ourselves, okay, now I just have to try really, really, really hard to stop. I just have to say no. I just have to cut this sin off and that's how I'll grow. And it's subtle because that's true. Part of that's true. That's a part of the picture. Man, man fighting sin is tough. And sometimes, it, I mean, we will have to grit down and kind of put our heads down and push through it. That is true sometimes. But listen, fighting sin does not just require resolve, but replacement. Fighting sin does not just require resolve, but replacement. Look with me again at verse two of 1 Peter. Peter does not just say, stop living in the passions of the flesh. He does not end there. Verse two so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, he continues, but for the will of God. The passions of the flesh are replaced with the will of God. As we seek to fight sin and obey God, our love for God will become greater and our attachment to the world will become lesser. Our passions for flesh get replaced for passions for God. Fighting sin does not just require resolve, but replacement, okay? So in, in, in wrapping up here, I just wanna look at a couple things. What does it look like to arm ourselves to obey God? What does this look like to arm ourselves to obey God? The first thing for us I wanna point out is trust God in your suffering. Trust God in your suffering. We've seen clearly that Christians will suffer, verse 4, 1 Peter 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, we will suffer. If we seek to live faithfully as Christians, there will be some pushback. If, you're not, if you've never gotten any pushback in your life as a Christian, there's pro, I mean, probably there's an issue. I would just say probably there's an issue. Because it just doesn't make, I mean, the whole Bible is, is replete with these exhortations like press through, press through, man. Look to Jesus. It's going to be tough. It's going to be joyful, but it's going to be tough at times. You've got to press through. And if you're just like, no, nah, I've never experienced any of that. I mean, I'm all good. You know, I'm all good. I never talk about my faith. I, you know, I kind of go with the crowd, whatever, you know, but I'm a Christian. There's probably an issue there. Okay. Living faithfully will bring pushback, but listen, our response is not to fight back, to get even to return insult for insult or evil for evil. Here's our response. Verse five of 1 Peter 4. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. They'll malign you, but they'll have to give an account to him who judges the living and the dead. Ultimately, we entrust ourselves to God and we trust God to deal with it. 
That is how we respond to suffering, just like Jesus did. Look back with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter says this, For to this you've been called, to suffering you've been called, suffering for doing good no less, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. Trust God in your suffering. Look, God, we know that God is sovereign over our suffering. Maybe most of us understand that. If you don't, then you need to know God is sovereign over your suffering. It's under his authority. But here's the other thing we need to know. God is, he's not just sovereign. He's also good. His intentions for us are good. His plan for us is good. His love for us is pure and full. 1 Peter 5, 7. Anyone know what 1 Peter 5, 7 says without looking at it? Cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. Therefore, we can trust God in our suffering. Number two, pray and love. What does it look like to arm ourselves to obey God? Pray and love. Verse six, by the way, another weird verse. You can thank, thank Peter for all these weird verses in this whole passage. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. For sake of time, I'm not gonna dive into it. All it means is this, even death does not separate us. Even death does not separate us from God's goodness. Even death does not separate us from God's protection. Even death does not separate us from God's mercy. And that's why the gospel is preached to us. And even though we die after that, it doesn't make a difference. It does not separate us from God. Pray in love, verses seven and nine, the end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep one, loving one another earnestly. There, there is nothing further to be accomplished, Peter says, so Jesus could come at any time. It's not so much a matter of timing, but more a matter of, 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 of what events need to happen. And Peter says, nothing else needs to happen. Jesus, the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. He died, he rose, he ascended. There's nothing else that needs to happen. So then he could come back at any time. And because of that, we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded, okay? This is the opposite of what Peter says fleshly passions are. This is the opposite of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Be sober-minded. And then he says, for the sake of your prayers. The idea is not be sober-minded so we can pray. The idea is be sober-minded so we can pray effectively, that when we're sober-minded, we're actually, and thinking biblically, we're actually alert to what's going on in the world and what's going on in our lives and what's going on in our homes. We're actually alert. And therefore we can respond biblically and we can actually respond with effective prayer. Love one another earnestly. All I'm gonna say on this is give you a quote that I think sums it up really good from Wayne Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter. He says this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion and every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflict abounds, listen, to Satan's perverse delight. Friends, loving one another is seeking the good of each other without selfish motive. That's what love is. May we exhibit that at Union Church as all Christians 
are called to exhibit it. Lastly, as we wrap up here, use your gifts to serve each other and glorify God. This is what it looks like to arm ourselves to obey God. Use your gifts to serve one another and to glorify God. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God in his unbelievable generosity has given each of us gifts, talents, strengths, inclinations. And he's given us these gifts not to be squandered for ourselves or hidden away like the man who buries the talents and never multiplies them and uses what God's given him, but that it be used for the building of God's church, for the good of God's people, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what our gifts are for. See, when we're in the flesh and in the world, we primarily use our gifts for ourselves. I've talked to non-Christians about that and they say, you can't say non-Christian, you can't say that we're always just selfish. We do good things. Okay, whatever, whatever. God's really gracious and there's, you know, common grace at all people. But bottom line is we're basically selfish. I mean, we're basically selfish people. When we, when we meet Jesus, we change. And the gifts that we once used for our own pleasure and our own delight and our own kingdom, we now use for the pleasure and delight of others and for God's kingdom. For the good of others, but ultimately and mainly and finally for God's glory. Because in everything we do, whether it's using our gifts or gathering together as a church or raising your children or fighting sin or eating or drinking or whatever you do, all of it for the Christian is motivated, ought to be motivated for the glory of God. Peter tells us to do that, but then he finishes here with an overflow of his own glorification of God. He finishes with this, to him, to God, to Jesus Christ, rather, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love, he tells us to glorify God and then he himself glorifies God, God as an overflow of what he's taught us. So I know we went a little over time and to rush there at the end. Hey, I hope that's helpful. I hope we have an understanding, a better understanding from Peter of what it looks like to fight sin and obey God. We fight sin by replacing our desires for sin with desire for God and for his will. And my prayer is that we'd continue to walk in this faithfully through this season of irregularity and through the, all the seasons in the future of normality, whatever season we're in, whatever stage of life we're in, may we as Christians seek to live faithfully unto God and to help each other do that well, amen? Father God, we thank you for, again, just a chance to gather uh, at this uh, location. Thank you that you provided for us in that way. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing together and we can hear your word together. And God, we can learn of you together. And I just pray, Lord, for my friends and for myself um, that you would help us to faithfully fight sin, that you'd help us to put on your armor, that you'd help us to get into our word, that you'd help us to exhort one another, that you'd help us, God, to take this seriously and by your grace to actually overcome sin. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to take hold of you and be obedient to you, understanding we're not obeying a cruel taskmaster, but we are obeying a good father who has saved us and redeemed us and who loves us and whose love will never end and will never change. In your good name, amen.